Hello, friends. What a treat to have you here with me. My name is Justin Mogg. You are tuned in to Sustainability Now here on your community radio station. We are Forward Radio 106.5 FM, forwardradio.org, broadcasting to you 24-7, 365 for nearly four years. Coming up in April, we're going to have our big birthday party. We want you to be a part of it. We're doing a, we're throwing a special virtual talent show in these pandemic times to keep everybody safe, but to highlight the many and varied talents of our community. If you have a talent you'd like to share in four minutes or less, whether it's music, art, magic tricks, uh, comedy, anything else you can think of, we've opened the floodgates for your creativity, and we'd love you to be a part of it. Go to FordRadio.org. You'll find a link right there at the top to uh, submit your application to be a part of our fundraising talent show. And then join us uh, on Saturday, April 10th. We'll be selling tickets soon, uh, and we encourage everyone in the community to come on out and support us and our talented community as a way to celebrate our fourth anniversary of being on these airwaves, all with your support. We're, we're totally listener-sponsored. No commercials on this radio station, just the love of the community keeping us strong and volunteer power producing this fantastic content that you rely on here in your community. So stay tuned for that and for our our pledge drive coming up too uh, towards the end of March. You won't want to miss it. Lots of opportunities to pick up on some great thank you gifts for your contributions coming up soon. And you can learn more at forwardradio.org. Well, what we do here on Sustainability Now is take a deep dive into social, economic, and environmental concerns, all of which add up to either a sustainable or an unsustainable future. And certainly a theme of the last year has been how much racism is making our own uh, culture, our own nation so unsustainable here in the U.S. And we've got to We've got to figure out how to be anti-racist in Louisville and in the U.S. and around the world. And a great voice for understanding that is the wonderful Ibram X. Kendi. And I am so delighted to be bringing his voice to these airwaves today. We're catching up on some great recordings from the recent past, and I'm excited to share with you another highlight from the annual conference of the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education, or AISHI. Ibram X. Kendi was the keynote speaker. He's author of the best-selling work, How to Be an Anti-Racist. In addition to being a number one New York Times best-selling author, Kendi is the Andrew Mellon Professor in the Humanities at Boston University, the founding director of their Center for Anti-Racist Research, a contributing writer to The Atlantic, and a CBS News correspondent. Also author of the book Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, which won the National Book Award for Nonfiction, and The Black Campus Movement, which won the W.E.B. Du Bois Book Prize. Uh, this is a fantastic keynote. Uh, he is in conversation here with Kimberly Smith of, of Aishi, uh, and you won't want to miss a minute of it. So uh, we're going to get to it with no further ado here, but stay tuned. Uh, we've got our, your community action calendar coming up after Ibram's speech, and we also have a little treat for you. Yes, the, we're going to turn the tables on me. Your host, me, Justin Mogg, is going to be interviewed in the middle here for a short little clip of my own father, David Mogg, interviewing me about the origin of 
my environmental ethics and what it was like to grow up in his family. So stay tuned for all that coming up here on Sustainability Now on Forward Radio. But with no further ado, I'll take you back to October 21st of this past fall with a great keynote by Ibram X. Kendi in conversation with Kimberly Smith of the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education here on Forward Radio. I suspect that many folks in the audience are already familiar with your work, but to help bring everyone to the same starting place, will you provide a brief overview of the central thesis of your book, How to Be an Anti-Racist? Sure. Well, first, that the opposite of racist is not not racist. The, the opposite of racist is anti-racist. And Secondly, that racist and anti-racist are descriptive terms. These describe what a person is saying or doing or not doing in any given moment. These aren't terms that are essentializing. This isn't about who a person is or what's in a person's heart or what's in a person's bones. These are descriptive terms. They, they describe what a person is being. And people change from moment to moment on issue to issue. And, and thirdly, how people change is based on the types of ideas that they're expressing, the types of policies that they're supporting or not supporting. And so when a person is expressing an idea of racial hierarchy, that there's, let's say, something wrong with Black people or right about, let's say, white people, they're expressing a racist idea and being racist in that moment. When a person in the, let's say the next moment is expressing an idea of racial equality, that there's nothing wrong with native people. In that moment, they're expressing an anti-racist idea and they're being anti-racist. When a person is supporting a policy that is leading to racial inequity and injustice, they're supporting a racist policy and they're being racist. When a person is supporting a policy that is leading to equity and justice, they're supporting an anti-racist policy and they're being anti-racist. And so I'm just encouraging people to be anti-racist, meaning to express anti-racist ideas, to, to support anti-racist policies. And unfortunately, you have to be actively anti-racist because the status quo is racist policies and racist ideas and racial inequities. And so you have to actively seek to undermine that racism. Okay. I think I heard a definition of racism and is it important to define racism? And if so, how do you define it? So yeah, racist with a T is essentially individual. So individual person, individual idea, individual policy. Racism with an N is inherently systemic. And so I define racism as a powerful collection of policies that lead to racial inequities and are substantiated by ideas of, of racial hierarchy. Okay, and in your mind, what is the root cause of racism? The root cause of, of racism historically has been a collection of policymakers who are behind those powerful policies out of self-interest, out of economic self-interest, out of political self-interest, out of cultural, even professional self-interest, 
to give an example, if you are an elected official who's right now in, in the midst of a campaign and you realize that you don't have enough votes to win, the only way you can then win is to subtract votes, <laughs> it's to suppress votes. So then you support racist policies that suppress, let's say, black and brown votes. And then you justify those racist policies with racist ideas. You say there's massive voter fraud. Those voters in Atlanta, in Cleveland, in Philadelphia, you know, in Phoenix, these black and brown people are fraudulent. And that's why we need these voting policies. When in reality, you need these voting policies to maintain office, i.e. political self-interest. Okay, using an example uh, in higher ed, can you put that in the context of higher education and maybe give us an example of that, how it manifests itself? Sure, so, so let's say if you are a wealthy white parent of high school children and you are hearing that many colleges and universities this year are opting out of standardized tests, namely SAT and, and other standardized tests. And you know that you have an advantage on standardized tests. Why? Because you can pay for high-priced test prep courses. You can pay for test prep consultants. Uh, you can pay for tutors, which will then allow your child's score to be boosted, which will then allow your child to seem as if they're more qualified than they really are. Meanwhile, another working class black or brown student who did not have his parents, did not have the resources to put him in a $1,000 test prep course, they only get 100 points less than you and your score was boosted 300 points due to your test prep. And so they're gonna oppose efforts that colleges are, are, are putting forth to scrap standardized testing because it's in their self-interest. They're not gonna say that publicly. They're gonna say, oh, my kids are working hard, so why would you, and this is fair, why would you take this away? Those other kids are not working hard. In other words, they're gonna say racist ideas to continue to defend that policy. Right, okay, that, that was helpful. It seems like every time we, we try to have a conversation about race and racism, it becomes contentious. Why do you think it's so difficult to talk about race and racism? So, you know, let's say if, um, if I was speaking Spanish and you were speaking French, it would be okay. hard for us to have a conversation, especially if I refuse to speak French and you refuse to speak Spanish. In other words, we want to speak our own language, right? We refuse to develop a common sort of language. And so it's the same thing around conversations about race and racism. Instead of the sort of different languages, we have different definitions of the same terms. And so you have people defining racism and racist very differently. Most Americans tend to find these terms in a way that exonerates them, in a way that exonerates their institution or, or their nation. And other people are, are, are defining them in a way that is actually more accurate and based in reality. And so, you know, I think in order to have these conversations, we have to have a common vocabulary. We have to define terms commonly. And the other thing I think that makes it difficult is unlike when 
we go to the doctor and a doctor diagnoses us with a serious illness. And then we, of course, are hurt. But we don't think that that doctor is trying to hurt us. We actually think that doctor, hopefully, is trying to heal us. When we're talking about race and racism, and someone like me, let's say, or someone else, diagnoses a person as being racist, and then the person feels hurt, they think we're trying to hurt them and attack them. They don't think we're trying to actually help and heal them. Yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective. And I, I want to ask you a sort of a follow-up to that question, because I, I felt like when, when reading your book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, you were trying to take away what's being called the R word from being used as like a, a slur, a pejorative. And, and put the word racism back into our vocabulary from like a linguistic perspective and, and use it as a descriptor that it is. So you really want people to focus on the ideas and acts and not just people, right? Yeah, because I, I, I think, you know, Richard Spencer, who is a proud white nationalist who organized the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017 that led to all sorts of violence, including the death of Heather Heyer. He once said that racist isn't a descriptive term. It's a pejorative term. It's the equivalent of saying, I don't like you. And, and many Americans say that they're not white nationalists, but they believe in white nationalist thought when it comes to thinking that racist is an attack word. It's a pejorative word that when we describe people as being racist, we're trying to hurt them. Um, no, we're trying to describe them. In many ways, my specific expertise, I'm not, you know, I don't have expertise in all forms of racism. I don't, I'm not completely knowledgeable about everything Black people historically or currently, but what I can do is diagnose. And, and how do I diagnose? Just like a, a radiologist uses these techniques, whether it's a CT scan or an MRI, the techniques or tools that I use are definitions, very clear and consistent definitions, definitions indeed that we all can use to define and describe our ideas and policies and actions and how we're being. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Professor Kendi. Well, you are a Dr. Kendi as well. Uh, that was helpful. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, it, it seems like everyone sort of considers themselves an expert in racism. So it was interesting to hear you say that you are not an expert in all forms of racism. But, but I want to ask you this as an expert in the subject matter. Is it possible to have meaningful conversations with people who lack knowledge of racist history? So there are conversations we can have in which we're learning from another person. Right, that's, that can be a conversation. And, and so if we humble ourselves and say, you know what, I've never really studied the history of racism in this country, but this other person is more knowledgeable th than I have. So I'm going to pick their brain or, you know, I'm going to read a book on the history of racism. And then I'm going to, you know, talk about some of the things that I'm learning and reading with another person who may be knowledgeable or who may not be, you know, to me, those can be very effective, but if we are telling someone who is indeed a student or an expert in the history of racism, what they don't know, 
then that's probably going to be a difficult conversation. Yeah, I, I would agree with because that. Because let me just say, uh, I, yeah, I agree sure. with you when you said that everyone imagines themselves as an expert on racism. And, right. and how do I know that? Because the overwhelming number of Americans claim that they can self-diagnose. <laughs> and that self-diagnosis is, I'm not racist. They have no idea yeah. what it means to be not racist or even racist, but they, they imagine that they are experts on the matter. Well, you're bringing me into the next question and I was gonna ask you to explain to what you mean when you talk about, I'm not racist. Because that's, that's sort of a central theme in your book. Yeah, and so one of the things I wanted to, to really get people thinking about seriously is we should be using terms with definitions. When we are using a term that does not have a definition, that's a problem. And so one of the things that I've been searching for for years is when people say that I am not racist, what does that mean? Because yeah. I know to be racist, it means to believe in notions of racial hierarchy. To be anti-racist is to believe in notions of racial equality. I don't really know what's between hierarchy and equality. I don't know of anything else <laughs> to sort of believe. And, and so I've been searching for what it truly means to be not racist. What I do know is just as Americans today say that they're not racist, slave traders and slaveholders swore that they were not racist. Lynchers and Jim Crow segregationists and eugenicists swore that they were not racist. Even Ku Klux Klansmen and, and white supremacist terrorists today claim that they are not racist. So I know that the history of racism is the history of denial. And I know that many of those folks who denied their own race, the ways in which they're being racist, claimed that they were not racist. I also know that they argued and still argue that they are perfect. In other words, they're perfectly not racist. <laughs> that they never ever yeah. say a racist idea. They never ever support a racist policy. While to be anti-racist is to be imperfect. To say, yes, I have been racist. I may say something that's racist tomorrow, but unlike this so-called not racist, I'm going to admit it. I'm gonna acknowledge it so I can be better. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that, Professor Kennedy. I, I wanna ask you about something that happened recently. I'm sure you're aware that some higher education institutions have canceled their diversity, equity, and inclusion training programs in response to uh, President Trump's executive order prohibiting federal agencies and contractors from providing workplace training that promotes what the order labels as divisive concepts. I wonder what you make of this and how you would advise campuses to proceed in light of this order. So what's fascinating about this order is it describes more or less anti-racist training and even thought as anti-American. So what that means to me, there's only other one other type of training or even thought. That's racist training and thought. So essentially what this order is saying is that pro-American thought is racist. And I disagree. And, and yeah. so I, I would 
I would argue and I would encourage colleges and universities to continue on as before and, and to not believe the propaganda that somehow American training and, and thought and to be patriotic is to be racist. Okay. And it just, you know, general counsel may not like that, uh, that response, but. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, along the same lines of, of talking about training programs, it, it seems like the standard organizational response from, you know, higher ed institutions, police departments, corporations, to racism is to implement some kind of training program. But studies of these programs tend to find little evidence of a positive impact. And in some cases, the training actually gets worse. I wonder if there's a, a different approach that you would recommend or a specific type of training you'd recommend. And should they be mandatory? So I think that it is critically important for people to be trained into not just understanding their own racist ideas and becoming conscious of their own racist ideas so that they can seek to overcome them. But they should also be trained into understanding the ways in which policies and practices at their own institutions are the problem. And, and, and really an incredible focus on both as opposed to just on the people as the problem. And so that's where I would sort of suggest. Okay, I, I wanna switch gears and take a, a question from Katie Peterson, who is a student from California State University, Chico. So her question is, can you please provide examples and guideposts of what a comprehensive anti-racist policy would encompass? If possible, please reference any institutions or companies that have effectively implemented anti-racist policies. So the difficulty in answering that question is every comprehensive set of anti-racist policies for every institution is gonna be different because the nature of the inequities are, are likely going to be, to, to be different. But I think somebody who is serious about creating a comprehensive anti-racist policy program will first and foremost collect and track racial data, racial data with internal to the company and external to the company or college or institution that then will then lead to that company analyzing the policies and practices leading to whatever disparities were revealed in that data. And then that would then lead to the company developing policies and practices that can eliminate those disparities that were revealed in the data. And then the company will track very closely if indeed those policies are working. Are there any companies that are doing that now? I mean, there's been a lot of talk. I've seen certain companies promised millions. I think JP Morgan was the most recent one that they're funding a few billion dollars to, I think, HBCUs and, you know, other companies. Do you think that they're going to be effective or are there plans promising? So I haven't sort of analyzed the policies of, of different companies that they're putting forth yeah. to really answer that question. So it's, I'm, I'm, I guess it's a wait and see, right? <laughs> That's okay. It's all relatively new. I just found out about it recently. 
You've said that some self-described forms of anti-racism are not anti-capitalist, which to me means that they're not anti-racist. Can you elaborate on why anti-racism is inherently anti-capitalist? Sure. And, and so what I try to show in, in how to be an anti-racist is really the history and the empirical effect of racism and capitalism. And, and so this is less of an ideological argument. And, and what I mean by the history is you take the most right-wing or left-wing economic historian, they will both mm -hmm. point to the long, what's called the sort of long 16th century as the cradling period of capitalism itself. And they will also point to Western Europe as the cradle of capitalism. So I'm an historian of racism. I found that racism emerged in this at the same time period, the long 16th century, in the same mm -hmm. place. And then when we talk about the development of capitalism itself, it's the same story in terms of the development of racism, the transatlantic slave trade, settler colonialism, slavery, the ways in which the profits from colonialism and even slavery were reinvested into the industrial revolution. And that then of course led to even more disparities between black majority black nations and let's say majority white nations that even led to massive disparities in the United States between white wealth and black wealth. And so now as an example, you can't really separate race from class. You can't really separate race from poverty and wealth. In other words, we're either looking at the United States or around the world, poor people are typically black, wealthy people are typically white. And then what, what majority white nations are typically wealthy and majority black nations are typically poor. And so this really shows the empirical relationship between racism and capitalism. Yeah, that's a, this, it's a whole host of issues involved in racism. And you, you explain those in your book very well. You've got a few chapters on talking about class, which I, I found fascinating. I want to talk about courage. You noted on The Atlantic's The Big Question that your favorite movie quote is from the movie After Earth, starring Will Smith, where he says, fear is not real, it's the product of our imagination. And in your book, you talked about courage and how that plays into racism. Uh, expound on this and, and help us understand it from your perspective. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I I know it didn't receive the best of reviews, but but I would encourage everyone to to check out the movie After Earth. It, it stars Will Smith and his son Jaden Smith, and it essentially is about the two of them becoming shipwrecked on an island, and in the crash, Will is hurt. And so it basically, Will has to really talk his son through getting them sort of to safety, getting them off to sort of island. And so that's really the plot line without giving too much away. And so at one point when he's encouraging his son to face this beast on the island, you know, he tells him indeed, you know, that fear is a choice, but then he says danger is real. And so I, I think that distinguishing between fear as a product of our imagination and danger as being real was just revelatory for me 
Because oftentimes we fear things that are not dangerous, <laughs> right? Huh. So in other words, you know, there are times in which I'm walking outside and people fear me, right? At the same time, they don't fear somebody who is white and young and male who maybe, uh, and, and so I, I just want people to realize that we can still do, in, but then even if somehow we do fear or recognize danger, that doesn't mean we can't do what's right. And so courage is not the absence of fear, but the strength to do what's right in the face of it. And while to me, I consider cowardice to be the inability to gather the strength to do what's right in the face of fear. Yes, I love that. I, I wanted to ask that question because, you know, we started our conference yesterday and we've had some fantastic sessions. A lot of them are dealing with this issue, racial equity and social justice. And I heard a number of people talk about how they want to do what's right. They see things that are racist, but, you know, when they try to speak up, maybe they're sort of, you know, put down or uh, they're nervous about speaking up because their job is on the line. How, how do we overcome that? We have to organize. In other words, we have to join with like-minded people. And, and so if we seek to make changes as a group, you know, it's much harder to fire, you know, 50 people, right? Or 30 people or 10 people. And, and so when we organize with people, it not only gives us the ability to be covered as individuals, but it also we're stronger with that larger sort of group. Yeah, yes, that, that makes me think of, about the protests that started earlier in the year throughout the summer and are still happening. And it, it seems as if the way higher education and society more generally responded to the protests was largely symbolic, issuing statements, changing names of buildings, removing statues, et cetera. But that's, I mean, that's important, obviously, but doesn't seem likely to reduce the murder of Black people by police, which was the main focus of the protest. What steps do you think higher education institutions should take to address this problem? Oh, so I think higher education should seek to really look within their own sort of communities from the standpoint of, you know, why is it that let's say black and brown faculty are un underrepresented. What policies can we institute that would eliminate this racial disparity? Why are, are native or, or Latinx or black kids underrepresented in the student body? Why are particular people underrepresented in, in the administration or in, in staffing roles? Do we really need to spend all that money on campus police? <laughs> can we shift some of that money okay. to financial aid? You know, how do we change the admissions policies to ensure that we're not excluding people because of how much money they make or, or because of the color of their skin? You know, what type of impact are we having in the community that we're located in? Are we creating more equity and justice or are we sort of a site of extraction? Yeah, uh, along that same line, what do you think that we as individuals, what, what can each of us do at our own schools, companies, organizations to dismantle racist policies? I mean, aside from being courageous, but let's say you're, you are courageous and you're willing to, to do what's right. 
what can can I do as an individual? So if you're an individual, some individuals are literally in policymaking positions. So, you know, they could use their policymaking power to change policy if the current set of policies are not leading to equity and justice. For those who are not in policymaking positions, you know, it's going back to what we were talking about earlier. It's important to organize with other people who have similar sort of desires to, let's say, a change a racist policy. And, and when you organize them together as a group, then you can essentially pressure policymakers to, to make those changes. Yeah, okay. Racism seems like a problem that will not go away. It has endured far too long, but it feels like we're, we're in a revolution of sorts. And if I'm not mistaken, in your book, you seem to, to be more optimistic. What, what is your view? Is racism something that can be solved? I mean, anything that can be created by humans can be eliminated by humans. And certainly racism is a product of humanity. It's not a product of, of, of nature. And so we can eliminate it. Despite that, certainly it's, you know, this racism is nearing 600 years in this world. And so certainly it wouldn't be easy. Certainly we can change policies and we should focus on changing policies. You know, in the next few years, it's gonna take a little bit longer to get people to see that those policies, those anti-racist policies are what's best for the country because you have some people who think the problem is, is, is those black and brown people and these people just need to be locked up as opposed to support it. So they may take some time to, to see sort of reality, but, but I, I believe it's possible. Okay. So I want to ask as, as the sort of final question, what's the one thing that you hope people take from this session and what do you hope they do differently as a result? If there's one thing they could take from this session, it's that the opposite of racist is not not racist. The opposite of racist is anti-racist. And I would hope that people would look in their local communities and institutions and, 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 and units and departments and join with those other people who are trying to challenge its racist policies. Say that one more time. That, that people would just join with people in their units, in their departments, in their local communities who are challenging racist policies. Any closing thoughts you want to share with us? Well, just um, hopefully everybody will will support the racial change that's that's coming, a, a change that can create a world of, of equity and justice, because that's the world we should all be seeking to build. Okay, thank you for thank you, Professor Kendi. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Uh, this was an important and much needed conversation, and I wish you continued success. The work you're doing is critical to us for having a just transition. All right, bye-bye. Take care, Kimberly. Thank you.
All right, and that was Ibram X. Kendi laying it down, author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, speaking back in October with Kimberly Smith of the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education at their keynote in their 2020 conference. It was such a pleasure to hear that great conversation, and I'm glad to finally have gotten an excuse to bring it to you today here on Forward Radio and Sustainability Now. Stay tuned, my friends. We've got our our community action calendar coming up in just a minute but before we get to it as promised we're going to turn the tables on me with a short treat for you a little interview that my own father david mogg did with me about the origins of our environmental ethics so here it is on sustainability now well, Justin, I'm curious to know if you recall how it was that you got so interested in Lover Run, the stream that runs uh, in the valley just behind our house. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah. When I hear now about these terms about nature deficit disorder and the healing powers of nature bathing, I didn't know these ideas at the time, but I grew up with that. I really drew energy from the natural ecosystems right behind my house. Of course, we were blessed with having a nice big backyard. We didn't live in an apartment with no yard, right? But that backyard backs up on a public park and a watershed that I got really interested in exploring. And I would spend my free time just turning over rocks in the creek and watching what the rains would do to the, the rate of flow uh, and, and, and just watching the sediment move. And then in college, of course, that made me interested in geology. And I studied sedimentology and things like that. Uh, but I also was interested in the critters in the ecosystem. And I remember too, Dad, um, science projects was a big part of my growing up. Of course, I've got, a, I've got a scientist for a dad, but the one that really sticks in my mind the most was this idea of studying what happens to all the road salt? Where does it go and what is the impact of all this salt we dump on our roads so that our cars don't slip around in the winter? And so I, I took a marshy area in the Four Mile Run watershed uh, and I did some sampling to to find out how much salt was in, you know, control samples before and then after a road salting to see how much the salinity levels would change over time. And so that really got me thinking about ecosystems, watersheds, and human impacts on them. Uh, and I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have had that if I didn't have access to nature. Uh, and so I really understand the value of that, and and understand why people in communities like the west side of Louisville, which a lot of people don't have cars and they're distant from parks. Um, we have some great parks in our city, but a lot, of, a lot of folks aren't able to access them. And that's kind of the environmental racism legacy in our city. And so I realized how privileged I was to have that growing up. And, and you, it sounds like dad, when you were growing up, you had a lot of polluted areas. <laughs> um. I'd also like to, from the cross-generational point of view, I'd also like to ask if you remember the occasion in which you taught me something very important. This was about the consequences of using uh, the disposal at our sink in order to get rid of our food waste. Well, exactly. And it's, and it's tied to the, this thinking about where does stuff go <laughs> when it hits those sewers, whether they're on the street or the sewer from your house, where does it go and what's happening to that material? Uh, and so, you know, it, it took that consciousness raising for me to realize that um, 
and then understanding more about sustainable agriculture and the importance of organic matter in soils for soil health, that this stuff we think, you know, we want to get rid of, it's a trash, we got to get rid of it. Uh, but a lot of it is valuable organic matter that we could be composting at home. And as you know, dad, it's as simple as a pile in the backyard, or you could spend a lot of money on it and get yourself a nice rolling bin or whatever you want. But as simple as a pile in the backyard allows those nutrients to return to the soil, to be food for other creatures and to help sustain us in the future if we're growing some of our own food at home. Whereas if we throw it down the incinerator and, and grind it up and send it down to the sewers, where does it go? It goes to the sewage treatment plant, right? And if it's solid, it might get pulled out and hopefully turned into a product that can actually be used on in agricultural fields. But anything that's liquid is gonna pass through that and go right out into our creeks. And that might sound okay, but too much organic matter in our creeks can be a problem. And in fact, ultimately all that nitrogen in our waterways is what causes things like the dead zone at the mouth of the Mississippi River. Uh, so we need to think about how we're tied into the larger ecosystems that ultimately sustain us. And, and so even though it seems like putting a little food waste down the sink is nothing, it's pollution. Yeah, and, and I thank you. I, 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 I thank you. I thank you all the time for teaching us about composting. We now have two <laughs> compost bins. We not only compost our food waste, but we also compost yard waste so as much yeah. as we can. And boy, the plants love that compost <laughs> for the next year. But the other thing that loves that compost are the worms and the beetles and all the other organisms that I discovered the first time I turned over the compost pile, I thought, oh my God, I've been denying these, these creatures a life because I haven't been composting. I'm doing the right thing by nature. Yes, and then if you turn that pile and expose those worms, the birds will flock. The birds love it, right? Like it's this great buffet for wildlife. And, and here in Louisville, we see, you know, the, the cats and the possums and the raccoons always like to hang around and watch the compost bin because there's mice around <laughs> there, especially in the winter, right? When it's the one warm place they can go. So yeah, it, it's a creating a little micro habitat and, and buffet for our non-human friends who, who we really need to be in community with um, more than human friends. Well, we owe, we owe a debt of gratitude to Pope Francis for writing the, the encyclical Laudato Si that is encouraging not just us Catholics, but humans around the world to understand their role in helping the earth to be the place that God intended it to be with humans as visitors. Yeah, absolutely. I have a lot of hope for faith-based initiatives to address the environmental crisis, to really see it not as just an abuse of God's creation, which of course it is, but ultimately, the only reason there is pollution in our world is because we're willing to think of other people and other creatures too, but even just other people as lesser and less important. And that's the basis behind the environmental injustice we see in places like West Louisville, Kentucky, or around the world where there, we think of them as sacrifice zones. Well, it's too bad. You've got Cancer Alley down in Louisiana and these people have to die, but that's progress. Well, that's no way to be a good person of faith, no matter what your faith is, right? Uh, we need to see that an abuse to 
the earth is an abuse to others and ultimately an abuse to ourselves. And, and I guess my last observation is that many people who are well off don't think too much about climate change and don't worry about global warming because uh, I'll just crank up the air conditioner and uh, they run from their air conditioned house to their air conditioned car to their air conditioned mall and they, they're never outside. Well, you know, that's not something a poorer person can do, especially if they're an agriculture or a laborer or they're, they're a home builder or something like that, where they are, as a requirement of their work, they have to be outside. They don't have the luxury. And then, of course, there are the super rich people who just say, well, I'll, I'll move to Hawaii. Why? They can do it. And they're not concerned at all about what's going to happen. I think the wealthy people suffering from the forest fires raging in California last year m might think differently. They, I mean, they they realize that climate change is coming home to roost for even the, the wealthy among us. But you're absolutely right, Dad, that the people who are going to bear the greatest burden of this abuse are the most marginalized. The people living in island nations or in coastal, in Bangladesh, for instance, very low-lying nations that are already stretched to the breaking point are now suffering from uh, the oceans rising. And, and of course, they're the first to suffer from extreme weather events, whether they're forest fires or hurricanes or floods. Those who can't, uh, don't have the funds or means to adapt uh, are going to suffer the most. And so that's another thing to keep in mind when we're thinking about why we need to take this action. Um, it's because we care about the poor. And that was a little clip from the tables being turned and your host, me, Justin Mogg, being interviewed by his own father, David Mogg from Arlington, Virginia, about the roots of some of my environmental ethics. I hope you enjoyed that little clip. And I hope you're getting your pencils sharpened and your calendars out and getting ready to take action this week for sustainability. It's coming up in just a minute here on Forward Radio. Shady grow my little love, shady grow my darling, shady grow my true love. Well, I'm going back to Harlem. Shady grow my little love, shady grow my darling, shady grow my true love. Well, I'm bound for shady grow. Beaches in the summertime, apples in the fall. If I can't have the girl I love, well, I don't want none at all. Shady grow my little love, shady grow my darling, shady grow my true love. Well, I'm going back to Harlem. Shady grow my little love, shady grow my darling, shady grow my true love. Well, I'm bound for shady grow. I wish I had me. Well, my friends, it's that time, time to get active for sustainability. Lots of opportunities this week for you to get engaged. And it all starts on Tuesday with the kickoff of a new health disparities series called Grow 502. I am going to be having an interview with the organizers of this series coming up soon on the program, so stay tuned for that. It's hosted by the UofL School of Medicine AMA chapter. West Louisville, of course, has a dense history of segregation, redlining, and lack of access to simple commodities like fresh food and affordable health care. The current pandemic has exposed the racial injustices within our society by highlighting the health disparities that have disproportionately ravaged our underserved communities. As a way of healing and reconciliation, they're going to present this health disparities series guided by the 2017 Louisville Metro Health Equity Report to educate and empower our Louisville community to engage 
in the reimagining of healthcare and public health. You can see the full schedule of events and get involved and, and participate at grow502.org. That's the number 502.org. Uh, starts on Tuesday the 9th at 6 p.m. with Rejuvenating Our Community, an educational panel on lead poisoning. Then on Thursday, the 11th at 5.15 p.m., it's Growing Leadership and Advocacy Workshop Number 3 on Modifying Existing Lead Legislation. So you'll learn about lead poisoning and then learn about uh, how to advocate for changing legislation around it on Thursday, the 11th at 5.15. Then this weekend on Saturday, the 13th at 2 p.m., it's Fruitful Chats with Activists on Housing Justice and Lead Poisoning. Then the following week, it continues Tuesday, March 16th at 6 p.m., Watering the Seeds of Change, a panel on mental health and substance abuse. Then on Thursday the 18th, it's the Advocacy Workshop on a Move to Petition to Medicaid Kentucky. And on Saturday the 20th at 10 a.m., Poppies, Pills, and Prevention, Opioid Overdose Response Training. If you want to learn more about this Health Disparities series and participate, you can go to Grow. 502.org and stay tuned to sustainability now we'll talk more about it on a future program also on tuesday the 9th at 6 p.m it's a reckoning forum on violence reduction taking place online uh interfaith paths to peace and the beloved community initiative invites you to participate in the first of many reckoning forums this forum will highlight four black innovators who are helping to address violence reduction Last year in Louisville, there were 173 deaths and 550 non-fatal gunshots, making it one of the most violent years in our city's history. It will take all of us playing our unique roles to address the psychological and social complexities that lead to violence and that bring healing. These forums provide a practical way to engage in co-creating a racially just city. Each month at the Reckoning Forum, they will highlight members of our community who are doing great work in creating racially just and equitable community and provide an opportunity to take practical actions to join them in their work. This month's truth tellers on March 9th include Dr. Stephen Knifley, Savvy Shabazz, Richard Whitlock Jr., and Aubrey Williams. During the first part of the forum, our four social innovators will share their stories and initiatives. And in the second part, participants will be able to join one of the innovators from, for more conversation and to explore practical ways to provide support. The Reckoning Forums are an essential part of the Beloved Community Initiative, which also includes the formation of actions, constellations, and learning labs around 20 areas discerned as essential for cultivating a racially just and equitable city. To build a more racially just city, Interfaith Paths to Peace is connecting religious, spiritual, and justice-seeking communities to the good work emerging from impacted communities. More information on this event is available at Paths, the number to peace.org that's paths to peace.org and again that's tuesday march 9th 6 to 8 p.m on zoom it'll also be on facebook live and you can find the link to register at paths to peace.org 
Now, coming up on Wednesday, March 19th at 3 p.m., it's a workshop on getting to net zero at home. You can join the Presbyterian Hunger Program for this webinar featuring Reverend Dr. Patricia Tull, an environmental theologian and A.B. Rhodes Professor Emerita of Hebrew Bible at Louisville Presbyterian Seminary, and also author of the book Inhabiting Eden. Using her own net zero home in Indiana as a model, Tricia will provide an overview of some of the promising ways that homes can be built or renovated to become energy efficient enough to power not only themselves, but family transportation and food production as well. You can join via Zoom and get your pencils out because it's a complicated URL, my friends. This is the best I can do. You can find it on March 10th at 3 p.m. at the following address, buff.ly, B-U-F-F dot L-Y slash the number two, P-H-O-M-7-2. That's buff.ly slash 2-P-H-O-M-72. Coming up on Friday, March 12th, the University of Louisville Brandeis School of Law and the Journal of Animal and Environmental Law will hold its Spring 2021 Symposium. It takes place from 9 a.m. to 12.30 on March 12th. They're happy to share that the Brandeis School of Law's Journal of Animal Environmental Law is hosting its fifth annual Spring Symposium this Friday, and it is sure to be an educational day, and they encourage everyone to attend. Uh, there will be several different sessions, including a Louisville Metro Land Development Code Equity Review, uh, solar energy issues in Kentucky, and net metering issues for rooftop solar, and siting issues in utility scale solar arrays with the wonderful Tom Fitzgerald of Kentucky Resources Council. He'll come on at 9.50 a.m. Uh, at 10.30, it's the link between animal abuse and crimes against people with Joy Kelly from the Kentucky Link Coalition. At 11.10, it's environmental justice and coal bankruptcies in eastern Kentucky with Mary Cromer from Appalachian Citizens Law Center. And at 11.50 a.m., it's sustainability and the evolving standard of care for design professionals with Gene Terry from Mannion Stigger LLP. And it closes uh, at... 1230. You can find the link to join at louisville.edu slash sustainability. And again, that symposium is coming up on Friday the 12th from 9 a.m. to 1230 p.m. It's online, it's free, and everyone can participate. You can drop in at any time. Coming up also on Friday at noon at the University of Louisville in person in the Garden Commons, which has been relocated to next to the Speed Art Museum parking garage at the southwest corner of Strickler Hall. It's a workshop on pollinators and beekeeping. You can join us in UofL's Organic Garden for a workshop all about pollinators and especially honeybees. Bees are an integral part of our ecosystem, especially within the garden. Without them, we wouldn't get the wonderful produce we cherish in our gardens and farms. We want to celebrate bees and the beautiful honey they make, so they'll be discussing how to make a garden more pollinator-friendly. You can check out UofL Community Composting Project's new beekeeping setup and learn more about pollinators and urban beekeeping from the Kentuckiana Beekeepers Association. Face masks and physical distancing will be required to keep everyone safe. It's free and open to the public on Friday the 12th at noon in UofL's Garden Commons. You can find more information at louisville.edu slash sustainability. 
Coming up this weekend on Saturday, March 13th from 10 a.m. to noon, it's the third annual Seed Swap sponsored by St. Matthew's Feed and Seed and Cook with Mary. It's taking place at 225 Chenoweth Lane. To participate, here's what to do. You can gather and bring seeds that you might have an abundance of to trade or swap. Be sure that the seeds are viable, preferably current year or no more than two years old. If you don't have any seeds, well, that's no problem. You can buy a packet of seeds at many garden centers and grocery stores at this time of year and invite your friends and garden enthusiasts. Drop into the event during the hours of 10 a.m. to noon to swap seeds, meet new gardening friends, and get energized to plant and harvest flowers, herbs, vegetables, and community spirit. The event will also include guest speakers, raffle items, door prizes, expert gardening advice, and even light refreshments, mass, physical distancing, and your patience will be required. Uh, this is again Saturday the 13th from 10 a.m. to noon at St. Matthew's Feed and Seed, 225 Chenoweth Lane. Also on Saturday in the evening and online, it's Real Good News, Local Action for Climate Change, a virtual conversation with members of REAL, the Renewable Energy Alliance of Louisville. We'll be hosting this conversation to learn more about what Louisville is doing for the sake of our climate. Presenters include Sam Avery and Roger Ullman from the Renewable Energy Alliance of Louisville, Nicole George, District 21 Louisville Metro Council person, Don Cooley, from Kentucky Interfaith Power and Light, who you heard on this show just about a month ago. Music by John Gage, singer, songwriter, and folk singer. You can register for this free Zoom event at renewableenergylouisville.org, and it will be taking place from 7 to 8.30 p.m. this coming Saturday, March 13th. Again, for more information and to register for the Zoom event, go to renewableenergylouisville.org. And one last time, I'll remind you that the city of Louisville is having a backyard compost bin and rain barrel sale at wholesale prices. Composting, of course, is a great way to easily turn your organic household waste into something valuable for your garden. Out of all the waste that goes into our local landfill every year, a quarter of it could have been composted instead. Likewise, by capturing rainwater from roofs for local storage and rain barrel, we reduce the amount of water entering our combined sewer system, and that means less raw sewage going out into our waterways during rain events. Water collected in rain barrels can be used to water plants or do washing, and it lowers your utility bill. These 55-gallon barrels come with an overflow hose, a spigot, and a fine mesh lid to keep debris from getting in and mosquitoes from getting out. You can order online at louisvillecompostersale.ecwid.com and pick up on Saturday, March 27th, anytime between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. at the Sun Valley Ball Field Complex during their pop-up drop-off event. Again, you can learn more and reserve your rain barrel or compost bin now at louisvillecompostersale.ecwid.com. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I hope you have a great week, and I look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well.